Hello, and welcome back to the Messy Mompreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Alicia Sanford, and I'm so happy to have you here. Yesterday was Father's Day, so I wanted to give a quick shout out to all the father figures out there. Um, Today, we're chatting with my husband. I thought it would be a fun time to have him on just because Father's Day and all that. He is an IT professional. He's knowledgeable in so many areas. So today we are going to focus on one of them. I wanted to bring him on because I feel like tech and security and anything related to any of that, it's not talked about that often. I I see so many business coaches, marketing coaches, um, you know, small business supporting accounts online cheering people on, but I really don't see much of the tech or security focus. So I wanted to talk about cybersecurity with him today. It's a crucial topic, but especially in today's digital age. And we are going to start with that and shed more light. So without further ado, meet my husband, Zach. Okay, so before we start and jump into the conversation that we're going to have today, can you give a little background um, to the listeners who don't know who you are or what you do? Uh, Yeah, sure. I um, primarily have been working in the IT industry for, I don't know, I'd say the last six years, Um, just working for various companies here and there. I do a lot of base kind of IT uh, needs for for companies as far as like maintaining their infrastructure. Um, I do a lot of programming, um, whether that's web programming or native application programming. Um, And then I also have a background with a little bit of cybersecurity, um, which I have cybersecurity certifications. So um, that's just a little bit about me. Awesome. Okay, so today we are talking about cybersecurity, and um, I definitely want to chat about various IT topics that can relate to small business owners and entrepreneurs, uh, if you're still willing to have those conversations in the future. Sure. But today, so cybersecurity is definitely probably the most important topic, I would think, um, to protect small businesses. So let's just jump into the questions I have for you. Um, so my first one, what are some essential cybersecurity practices that every entrepreneur should implement to protect their sensitive data? Um, you know, as far as like someone who's, you know, just starting up, obviously you're going to touch technology quite a bit um, in this day and age because a lot of people, instead of doing like storefronts, they might just have an online business or whatnot. Um, but, you know, there are... A, ton of things that you can do some cost a lot of money some don't but just some like basic things that you can do to help kind of give you a better security posture so to speak would be you know when you're when you're signing up for services online you can use um, complex passwords or phrases um, just to make it harder to kind of get into those accounts Um, you know one thing that a lot of people uh, don't actually do um is use like two-factor authentication. Um, With some people that I've talked to, it it just seems like it might be an inconvenience for them. But a lot of services such as even basic like social media accounts, most of them nowadays will have um, some sort of setting in the back end where you can go and enable two-factor authentication. And um, while it might be inconvenient, it actually stops a lot of like unwanted people from trying to like hack your accounts. Cause that's very common nowadays. A lot of people have their Instagram, atta- uh, hacked and whatnot, but, um, going in and, and enabling this and using it with, um, so for example, like I use it with just about every service that I'm signed up for online. And I just have the, uh, Microsoft authenticator app on my, um, iOS device. And it's it's really neat because whenever I go to like, hey, my Twitter account, and you want to enable two-factor authentication, usually there's some sort of QR code you can scan with that specific application, and it'll just add it to it. So it, it kind of keeps all your codes in just one app. And so what it does is, uh, from a hacker's kind of point of view, is it, it, it obviously adds more red tape for them to kind of go through. Um, 
because it's one thing for them to kind of figure out what your password is and, and just use it anywhere. Even if let's say like I'm located here in Oregon and let's say a hacker from, you know, Florida gets it, they can log in from there. Well, that might be just something that they know. And what makes two factor authentication, two factors is one, they have to know your password, but two, they have to physically have this device with this app that has a, you know, time generated code that you have to enter in each time you log in. So it's, it's two different factors. Um, so it, it does, again, it, a lot of people kind of find it inconvenient. I love it. I mean, I use it for, again, just about every service, but it really does add a, a whole barrier of, you know, protection against, you know, unwanted people. Yeah, I know. I just finished trying to set all of mine up and it, it does feel inconvenient at first, but it is re reassuring to know, like, for example, even with PayPal, I've got the two factor. And so I know that PayPal isn't going to be near as uh, jeopardized because <laughs> I have. That. Yeah, you know, and and a, a kind of a side thought with that is every time that I use it, let's say, um, so like one thing. I mean, everybody does is you know they watch YouTube. So I have with my Google account a two-factor authentication, um, and I never really save my passwords to my browser. Um, it's just kind of a bad practice. So every time I, I log in with my password. Um, Google will send a kind of prompt for me to open up an app on my phone, like the Google app or the you know YouTube app, and then it'll have a prompt in there for me to physically press, and that allows me to log in on my browser on my computer. So uh, the cool thing about that is if somebody does find out what your password is, and let's say they're over there in Florida and I'm over here in Oregon, but they're over in Florida and they go to a web browser and they try to log in with my credentials my phone will prompt me, like, hey, somebody's trying to log in. I mean, and that kind of just in your mind is like, hey, I'm not trying to log in right now. Something's up. And then for some services, there's other things you can do, like go and see where this is, this login's coming from, or if you need to change passwords, if you feel like your password's been compromised. So it, it does a couple things. But again, yeah, kind of like you're saying, at first it feels inconvenient, but it kind of goes a long way. So speaking of inconvenience, you had mentioned complex passwords and not using the same password. Uh, do you have mm -hmm. any recommendations for dealing with multiple passwords? Because I'm guessing the reason most don't want to do that is because it's hard to remember a bunch. Yeah. I mean, this, I, I mean, I can go on for days with the, you know, your original question about just like, Hey, what are some things I can do? So, um, yeah, you know, one thing that I like to do and, uh, People have, I would assume a lot of people have more than like 10 services they use online now, whether it's uh, Google, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's, you know, the meta with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So that's, I mean, we're listing five right there. Um, a really good thing to do is not only use complex passwords, but like you're saying, use different passwords per service, right? Because what happens is, you know, hey, if that guy, if I keep going on Florida, I, I have no, you know ill will against people from Florida, but that's just the example I'm using for this. So that guy from Florida, you know, if he compromised my, you know, YouTube account and figure out what the password is, if I use that password where he can slowly pivot and figure out, Hey, he also uses these services. Let's just try that password. And all of a sudden he's into my Facebook. He's into my Instagram. He's into just everything. My Microsoft 365 account. So, um, one, it, it's good to have different passwords, but like you're saying, like, how do you manage that when, you know, you have a complex password list, what I can't remember, um, a really common tool that people use, um, is like a, a password manager, um, where you, it's like a small little database or a piece of software, um, that, you know, you, I know there's some that are on iOS and I know there's definitely a lot for like windows and stuff. But it's essentially just like a little database and you can keep records of, hey, this service, you know, here's my username, here's the password to it, and then, you know, here's a link to the login screen or whatever. And then so once you kind of build out this database with all these services you use and all the passwords, it essentially encrypts this database. And then all you have to do is remember one password to unencrypt it and see all these passwords. So it's 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 easy for you to manage, but there there's a side effect to that where you have to be really careful in which provider you're you're looking at. So one that I had used in the past was called, um, and I believe it's still open source, but it was uh, is called KeePass. And just recently they had an issue with some sort of vulnerability 
um, with a specific version of it where people, if they, they were malicious and trying to figure out what your passwords were, they can use that vulnerability against KeyPass to, to figure out what your master password, that one password you have to use to unencrypt the entire database. They were easily able to get it through this vulnerability. So I think they fixed that with a patch or whatever. So you just, you have to do a little bit of research, whether you're using like one, uh, I think it's called OnePass, KeyPass, or some online service. Um, I typically like to have something that's local to my devices instead of using like an online service that just floats around. Um, but that would be a good way to kind of manage that. So you can use different passwords for everything, or if you need to update passwords, all that, and just and have it in one spot. So. So if I was looking to set that up on one of my devices, would I go into like my settings and just type in password manager? Is that kind of a universal? Um, I, I think it's becoming more and more common. I can't speak for like Android devices, but I think the newer versions of like iOS and I still don't use it just because, you know, I kind of figured out my best way of doing it and I'm just sticking with that until something goes sideways with it. <laughs> But um, I think in, in iOS, there's actually like a built-in kind of password manager in it. Um, I'd assume because it's Apple that it's pretty good, but you'd have to look into it and see if anybody's had issues with it. But um, from my understanding, if you go to like a site, let's say I just use a, uh, Safari to go to facebook.com and I create an account. And as soon as you're, you're doing the username or password to log in for the first time, I think there's like a little prompt that pops up in Safari that says, hey, do you want us to remember the password? And then it stores all that. And of course, in like Mac OS, they have the, uh, the key vault in there as well, where you can store those types of passwords and they're all going to be encrypted. So some you know operating systems and some pieces of software have it built into it but if you wanted to have like an all-in-one place which i because i use so many different like operating systems and services online i just like keeping them all in one place so that's how i kind of do it but um to answer your question yeah i think some of the software and it's becoming more and more prominent uh, as time moves forward so and those are are they free or are they just low cost um, um, some of them will have paid and some are free. Like, um, I, I mentioned the one that I used to use, um, was open source. And so open source, uh, is a really good option for software and whatnot. Um, because it's free one, first of all, it's free. That's kind of implied with the open source, but it's really supported by the community. So it's, it's usually, uh, pretty secure. Um, but some of the other stuff, you know, like when I go get my Apple computer, like my Macintosh or whatever, um, you're going to pay for that operating system. You're going to pay for that hardware. So it does come built into it. Right. So that you are kind of paying in a sense. Okay. Well, my next question was going to be, um, how can small businesses with limited resources effectively manage their cybersecurity needs? But so far it sounds like the three things you've touched on, which are, um, the two-factor authentication, complex passwords, and then a password manager, they're essentially free, if not just low-cost yeah. service. I mean, if, if you're limited on resources, I mean, the biggest thing you can kind of do, um, if you're a small business, I'm assuming that, you know, maybe you're the only employee or maybe you have, like, you and a couple other people. But um, really just kind of going in and using some sort of training, like to always be training, because... These uh, kind of threats that are out there online, trying to get your passwords, trying to get into your systems and steal your data, um, they're always using new techniques as days go on. So you always have to kind of be up on on training. So just being aware of what's going on around you and what services you use and what kind of risks are involved with using those services can go a long way. Because, and again, this kind of goes with, you know, I've, I've worked for companies who have a lot of users and so some of the things that you learn is, yeah, I can, you know, pay for the greatest software that's the most secure and all this stuff. And we can use secured email servers and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, the big, the biggest weakness to the organization is always the end user. And it, it sucks saying that, but it, it is. And it's usually due to, to user training, like, hey, going through and just, you know, for instance, with emails, you know, just there's a lot of phishing campaigns out there that these malicious people are sending emails. Hey, click this link. I, I don't. Can you put your password in for this? And they're just always trying to get your your information or getting you to click on things or download things. 
and just having these end users or yourself, if you're the only person, just always being aware of like what these kind of look like, how they, you know, think look for, um, and then again, what services you use and what risks are around those. So <laughs> real quick, um, you have tried your best to educate me on what to click and not to click in emails. Um, sure. And just last week, I received an email from you, supposedly. Uh, so mm -hmm. you had taught me to always double check the sender's email address because they can, they have a way of basically, I don't know, titling their name or whatever, however they want. But then if you click that, it shows you the email address that it's actually coming from. And it did say yours. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a weird message from you that I'm reading. It was a link and I clicked it anyway because I thought it was from your email address. And it turns out sure. it wasn't. And you mentioned the, the term spoofing. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Because you said phishing. Are they the same? Um, so phishing is um, kind of like is there's some types of phishing that's targeted and whatnot. Um, but like phishing is just like sending out emails. So that guy from Florida, um, <laughs> I feel bad for him. But yeah, he's he's sending out just blasting all these email addresses with you know, maybe an email that looks like, um, for instance, let's say it looks like something that came from us bank. So I might hop on Photoshop and make a us bank logo that's similar and all this stuff. And I might just draft up this email that looks, you know, pretty convincing that, but it might say something like, Hey, uh, the last few transactions against your checking account, you know, have been halted. Please click this link and log in. Um, with your U S bank credentials, uh, to review and resolve these issues. Right. And so beyond that email, that link might be, he might stand up some website and actually do the same thing, make it look like a U.S. bank website and have a login screen. And as soon as you put your username and login, that person has hey, guess what your username login to your U S bank account. So, um, those are, those are, that kind of falls into the category of phishing. They're, they're just sending out these emails and it's phishing with a pH not an F. But um, just sending out, blasting out these emails and seeing what they can get. I mean, it, in the literal sense, it's almost like you're fishing, right? You're putting a worm on your hook and you're putting it in the pond and just seeing who bites, right? So um, with that, spoofing's uh, a little bit different. Um, spoofing is like appearing as someone you trust, but you're actually not. And you had just said it, um, we've had docs in the past about there's ways in your email client, like if you're using Outlook, you can you can see sometimes it'll pop up with a with a known name. So like if I send you an email, it'll say from Zach Sanford, not necessarily my email address specifically. But if you kind of hover over certain areas, it'll tell you who it's from, or you can look at the email headers and it'll tell you exactly what email address it's coming from. And so that's kind of a common thing. The spoofing, it might say, hey, it's coming from Zach Sanford, but as soon as you hover over it, it might be some weird you know, letters and numbers at some weird domain.net or something like that. And you're like, oh, that's not actually Zach or whatever. Um, so that's what, that, a common way to kind of determine, hey, you know, I wasn't expecting an email from Zach and, you know, it's something about, you know, his auto insurance or something. It's kind of strange, you know, that's something you can kind of look at. Um, with our case last week, it was kind of unique and this might happen to a lot of other people. It actually came, they spoofed my email address. So it actually came, it looks like it came from my email. But of course it didn't when you dig deeper into the email headers and stuff. And that, that means kind of beyond this, this conversation. But um, looking at that email, you can determine, hey, okay, it looks like it came from Zach. But as soon as you got into the subject and the body of the email, you can tell it didn't sound like me. It was barely like, hello, Alicia Sanford. Yeah. Like that, you know, those are things. So that's, that's another thing to look for in emails. Like if you're unsure, like are there a lot of um, spelling errors or the grammar's just not quite right? You know, those are those are indications. Obviously, if an email has a link in it, you, you just want to kind of be cautious of it. And sometimes they might mask um, the link by just using text and it's a hyperlink. And you can always hover over those links and it'll tell you what address it's going to take you to in your browser. So. Uh, I mean, there's a handful of things you can just do as an end user to to kind of identify these things. But yeah, our case was a little bit more unique. And so it's just always, you know, 
I might not know everything. You might not know everything. Again, it kind of goes back to your last question of just trying to always be aware and train yourself on what the next thing they're trying to do, you know, what it kind of looks like or what to look out for. Yeah. So speaking of that, uh, so these are definitely relevant right now. I mean, I feel like I feel like my inbox or at least my spam folders are just full of that. Um, do you know of any other emerging cybersecurity trends or technologies that entrepreneurs should keep an eye on within their small businesses? Um, I mean, as, as far as risks go, I mean, the biggest things that you should always, I mean, two simple things. One we just kind of went over is everybody uses email and that's one of the biggest kind of entry points for uh, like people trying to steal information or they just might be a malicious person. So just knowing what to look for in emails and we kind of went over that. But another thing is, um, web browsers are, are a really good entry point for um, people. Because a lot of times people might have a Chrome web browser and they use extensions and you just install extensions willy-nilly and you don't really know who authored them or if they're malicious or not, so you might install the wrong thing. So the, uh, a really good thing with just web browsers is just always making sure they're up to date because there are a lot of like, and I follow this like a cybersecurity, you know, thread of daily, like, hey, update this. You know, Google just came out with a new update uh, for Chrome because of a zero day, you know, vulnerability and, you know, known extensions that are bad and all this stuff. So just having that up to date and then what to look for in emails are, are really good ways, um, kind of trends, you know, to, to look for. Um, but as far as like emerging technologies that might be useful, you know, on the opposite side of things, I know we're talking about malicious people a lot, but like right now a real hot topic is, uh, like AI. So, I mean, I'm sure you've heard AI in the last, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it feels like the last at least six months, but, um, that might be a, a really handy tool as of right now, uh, for people to use. So one of the biggest ones is the chat GPT, um, the language model, um, it's pretty phenomenal. I would keep an eye on that because I use it almost every day. I know you use it quite a bit as well, mm-hmm. but like a really good use case is just having, I, I use it to draft up emails for me. Like I was just like, Hey, here's the parameters. You know, this is the kind of tone I want for the email. Hey, can you make one up? And it'll just spit one out. And then you can kind of re- look at it um, and revise it. You can say, Hey, you know, I like that first paragraph, but let's make it a little more, you know, subtle here and there and it'll redraft it for you. So it's a, it's a pretty handy tool as far as, uh, productivity. Um, so the AI is always one to kind of watch for. You already know this, but I may or may not have sought out some help with these questions from chat GPT because I wanted to make sure I'm asking the questions that would be the most beneficial, um, as far as, the conversation, but also the answers and the information that listeners could get from you, who is very knowledgeable on this, and I am not, and I just wanted to make sure I was asking, sure, you know, worthwhile questions. So anyway, yeah, ChatGPT has been helpful, and I definitely want to do another conversation um, regarding AI, but as a, a whole conversation on its own. So we'll revisit that. But you were mentioning to keep an eye on AI as far as security. Um, but I don't know that you dove further into why. Well, well, not really security. I, 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 I use it more for productivity. Um, security wise, the only thing, I mean, cause I do follow it a little bit and it's something that you got to take with a grain of salt because some people think it's like the be all end all of like, Hey, I'm just going to start using it. And, um, there have been, I mean, numerous accounts where it's really handy. It's beating some really hard test at university with like super high scores and all that. And it kid, they, uh, the parent company, uh, open AI, you know, they're still coming out with more iterations of it. And so it's, it's a really interesting topic, but there have been a couple like downsides to it. And like, for example, there's one, and I don't have the article up in front of me cause I read this. I don't know. I think it was a, couple weeks ago but there was a a lawyer who had a client and they were trying to build a case um for their client to use in court and the attorney used chat gbt and it said hey we're trying to make this case or whatever and so it asked it a few questions and and chat gbt 
had come back with a bunch of references to cases. So like, you know, Sanford versus, you know, McDonald's or, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, it came back with quite a few of these references and the guy didn't like proof it or anything. He didn't go back to check these. And so, um, and being a lawyer, you have access to a lot of tools where you can go and check previous court cases. And that's how you kind of build your case. Um, anyway, so he presented this in court and uh, apparently they found out almost instantly that all this was bogus. And so, you know, and when he, when you go and look at each of these court cases against their database of previous court cases, none of these existed. And so it's one of those things where people just go at it. So that's why I'm always saying, just kind of watch what it's doing or see what else is out there. Um, just, and again, the biggest thing is just use it because it's a great tool, but use it very sparingly or if you do use it quite a bit make sure if you're using it in a professional sense to really look at the answers and and see you know hey is this really what it's supposed to be or you know is this just bogus coming out of the you know it's just spitting out some weird answer so um just always double check it is there ever a concern of personal information that you share in your prompts or questions to chat gpt is there ever a concern of that information being able to I don't know what I'm trying to ask, uh, like leave the chat GPT. Yeah. So, and this was even an older story that I had read, but, um, so I do a lot of programming, um, and programming is, uh, a wide and vast, you know, um, kind of vector of, uh, it, but, um, so to do a lot of things in, in programming, you're usually working against a set of data and it's, you know, it's frowned upon to work against a, like a live production set of data. You want to make some fake data. And, um, so there have been cases and I've heard, I don't, I didn't look too deep into it where people, when they're working for a company and they're programming a certain, you know, thing or trying to figure something out, they can use chat, chat GPT, excuse me, to, you know, generate codes for, for them. And it's actually really handy. But there was a case where um, a guy was asking for, hey, you can write me this snippet of code and use this and that. And actually, in the process of doing that, um, for whatever reason, he actually leaked out some information, proprietary information to the from the company that he worked for out to ChatGPT. And now it's being kind of cycled in into the uh, logic of Ch ChatGPT because it's always learning, right? And so that's kind of always, you always got to be watching what goes into chat GPT and also what's coming back out of it. Right. So it's just, again, to just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Don't think that it's, it knows everything because uh, it's been wrong on a number of occasions and obviously it's been right too. So it's just take it with a grain of salt. Well, okay. So we're going to have a separate conversation about AI further down the road, but I just wanted to make sure that we touched on the cybersecurity concerns of it. And I'm, I'm glad you shared that last bit because I know lots of people are using it right now. It's kind of the hot new thing. So, um, yeah. so my next question, what would you say are the differences between cloud-based and on-premises um, cybersecurity solutions and how should entrepreneurs decide which one is right for their business? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good question. Um, you know, originally 10, 15 years ago, it was all, um, and I'm going to use the term on-prem cause that's usually how, um, people in it say it. Um, but it, for the on-premises meaning, Hey, you know, we need an email server, right? Well, we have to buy the physical hardware. We have to buy the server. We have to have, you know, a rack that it goes into. We have to have a networking switch that our computers can connect to the switch and the switch goes over to the email server and all this infrastructure, essentially you have to own it. One thing that's one th part of it is owning it, but also maintaining it like issuing patches or software updates or all this stuff. And so on-prem was the model for, I mean, forever. Right. Um, and that's why we have it professionals who really dive into these and, and do tests and stuff like that. As far as like patching s servers and all this, because, Sometimes you might have a server that's production, like our main email server, and you 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 know Microsoft comes out with an update for it, and then you just push it without testing it, and all of a sudden your email server is not working correctly, and now all these users are 
they can't send emails outside of the the organization and they can't email each other and, and then it just opens a can of worms so there's a lot of headache when it comes to just being in it but if you were the the owner of a company and having to manage that as well as your other duties it can kind of just spiral out of control so one of the the nice things with most of these um and I'm going to call them CSPs, which stands for uh, cloud service providers. They usually take care of all that stuff for you, right? So a great example is you can go to um, like Microsoft and you can actually just go and get a standalone um, exchange server, which exchange server is their email server. Uh, that's ho They host it. They do all of the network stuff to get in and out from the internet. Um, out to, to other email servers. And I think they charge like at, at the time of this podcast, I think it's something like $5 per user. So like if you were a small org and you had five employees, so it's $5 per user a month to have your own kind of private email where you can, you can go in and configure it. Like if you want, Hey, we want to block domain, like these known malicious domains and all that stuff. You can do all that, but you don't have to maintain the hardware or the software. So you don't have to update exchange itself. Um, that's all pushed out by Microsoft. So, cybersecurity-wise, it's there. There's, you know, ups upsides to them and, and downsides on both sides. Um, right now, if you're kind of a smaller business or a, even I would say a mid-sized business, the cloud solution is a, a a great way to go, and that can be through you know, depending on what your needs are. You, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people need email, so that might be something you want to use, or if you want to go out and just use your own you know, like a free, uh, email server, like Gmail or Microsoft's outlook. Um, you can do that as well. But, um, as far as like small and midsize, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to using these new, you know, software as a service, you know, it, you and I, we use, uh, Microsoft 365, which is really beneficial because we get the, uh, office suite, you know, back in the day it was Microsoft office, you know, 2007 or whatever it was and you get the disks and you install it put the product key and all that with the 365 or cloud version of it you know all these security updates all this um patching and 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 all the stuff surrounding that it's all just done from microsoft and they just automatically push it out and all we have to do is pay our yearly fee and we get all these apps and they're all available to us online or a downloaded client or you know it's it's really easy you know and it's something if i was to start a business and not only am i managing you know the ins and outs of the business but now i got to worry about oh okay i'm gonna install office and i gotta make sure it's patched and all this stuff so it just it it's just an easier way to go about it um but again there are security measures you want to take and a lot of these csps or again cloud service providers they use what's called a zero trust model uh meaning that essentially everything's just locked down and you have to go in and kind of unlock it. So to allow people to go and do things. So it's a good way to keep people out that, that are unwanted, but you do have to kind of go through and kind of configure things in a certain way initially. But at the end of the day, it's a really good solution. Hmm. Um, can you share any real world examples of successful cyber attacks on businesses and the lessons that entrepreneurs could learn from them, maybe anything. I'm sure we've heard of a bunch of different headlines, but even some local ones I think we've heard of recently. Oh, uh, I mean, I can go on for days about this. It, it seems to be like a weekly thing. You always just, you know, again, I kind of follow these specific, you know, streams of information and uh, cybersecurity is a big one just because, you know, I, I try to help other people out with, you know, their IT needs and they use certain pieces of software. So I follow these streams just to see if I hear, hey, you know, so-and-so is using, you know, Chrome or you know, there's a Chrome issue. It's like, oh, okay, I know there needs to be a patch. Maybe I should call them and patch it or whatever. But um, back to the the question, I mean, it, it, it does happen all the time. And so, um, you know, actually a local one that's kind of, relevant still relevant we don't actually know all the details of it because it's still ongoing is i think it was last october so that would have been like october 2022 or november maybe of 2022 um chi which um 
big in the healthcare industry, lots of hospitals across America. Um, we have the local to us in Roseburg, uh, the CHI Mercy. They were, their parent company was suffering a ransomware attack, I believe. And, and I, again, I don't have the article pulled up, um, but they essentially uh, were victims of ransomware, which affected, and I think the total count last I saw was about 164 hospitals across America. So these are in states like Oregon, Texas, uh, Nebraska, and, and others. But they were affected by this cybersecurity attack because it affected a lot of their different systems. Um, and in fact, just our local CHIMRC, I think it affected um, something to do with their system that controlled appointments for, for customers, and but mainly it was their payroll system for paying employees, and it caused a, a huge headache, and people weren't getting paid correctly. And so, and that's just our at our local level here. I mean, again, these things happen all over the country all the time. And you know, we were just talking about these malicious people or their threat actors, essentially. Uh, they're just coming up with newer ways of of attacking these organizations, and so. As an entrepreneur, you can sit back and look at it, and it's usually the ones you see in the headlines are going to be the bigger companies. But I assure you there are a lot of smaller organizations or small just startups that are being attacked as well. And it's, I think it's in part uh, because, you know, being a small entrepreneur or a small startup, you know, they, you, you're on a budget. Let's face it. You know, I mean, you can go out and get business loans and all this stuff, or you can save up money personally to put into it. But at the end of the day, you're on a budget. And IT in general is very expensive to, to pay for hardware, to pay for software. And that's why we have these cloud solutions and, and whatnot. But um, you're always on a budget. So I, 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 even though you do see a lot of larger companies being attacked because that's just what's in the news, I mean, a lot of them do get, get attacked as well. So, you know, just kind of reading the news, what kind of uh, security threats are out there. And it, it kind of just goes back to just being informed, you know, once a week, maybe look just do you know 30 minutes of googling around see what you see out there even just look into your sector let's say you're starting up you know um or not sector that's the wrong word i'm sorry uh, your industry you know if you're doing something that's healthcare related like manufacturing some sort of medical tool you might want to see what you know cybersecurity attacks or ransomware attacks that have happened in the, the medical industry and see kind of who they're targeting you kind of want to put yourself in the the threat actor shoes to see if you're maybe a potential target for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And also with these stories that come out, they, they usually tell you how things happen. So back to the CHI mercy um, ransomware attack, it was all because of a vulnerability in this software that they purchased through a third party. Um, and I believe it was a SQL injection, which is a very common way for malicious people to attack you through you know, uh, web-based attacks, right? They, they send commands to your databases that aren't allowed and they can retrieve passwords and stuff like that. And once they get the passwords, then they're, they kind of have the keys to the castle, so to speak. So um, just knowing that they're, they're doing that, then you can find out ways to, to mitigate against that type of vulnerability, right? So just, just kind of staying informed, you know? Yeah, this is somewhat unrelated, I guess, but uh, you had mentioned small businesses having limited budgets to be able to potentially invest in cybersecurity solutions. But so you also had mentioned the um, essentially free or low cost ways at the very beginning. And one of them was the two factor authentication. I have a friend who had an Instagram account and she had built it over years and years and years. She had over 10,000 I don't know, followers, I guess you call them, but she had invested so much time. She had, um, I'm sure a bunch of client communication in her messaging inboxes with that. And I'm guessing that a two factor wasn't set up because she had someone hack her account and hold it hostage and demand. I don't know the dollar amount, but I'm sure they demanded thousands of dollars for her to get it back and it just wasn't feasible. And so Unfortunately, you know, I don't know, just you had mentioned businesses having a limited budget, but if you get hacked and kind of screwed like that, you have even less means to be able to get it back and you've worked so hard for all of it. 
and you're yeah, kind of stuck. I mean, you're 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 right, and I'm just going to kind of go back since you mentioned the two-factor authentication. I mean, if people are if these malicious people are are smart enough or have the will to kind of keep trying and trying, I mean, it, they they can get through the two-factor authentication in certain circumstances. Um, but just by enabling that, I mean, it does add a huge wall that they have to try to climb over, you know, mm-hmm. versus just using a traditional, you know, password-based authentication against services. So, um, but yeah, I mean, a story like that and, you know, just in kind of my personal realm of things, there there was a uh, kind of a celebrity that I follow that had their Twitter account hacked and it was a similar thing where it's like, hey, if you pay this amount of money, I'll, you know, give you, uh, give you the password or whatever back so you can log in. And, um, apparently they were sending, uh, cause it was a Twitter account. They were sending tweets with, Hey, I purchased these laptops and there was a link and people were actually going to it. Cause they're like, Hey, this is that person going to link and buying these laptops, which I mean, I have questions about that alone. Cause that's kind of strange buying uh, laptops from a celebrity, but I would assume just like in your case that maybe the, you know, two factor authentication could have helped out a little bit. So, um, but yeah, going back to like the budget, I mean, a lot of these services, they're starting to provide these for you. It's almost becoming a standard, which is great because that's uh, no cost to you. It protects you and your accounts, but it also protects the company, whoever's providing the service because they could be liable for, you know, these types of things. And so having that become more of the standard or more of the norm is great, you know, and this is kind of a side note, but like, cause we were just talking about Twitter and two factor authentication, um, they had just made uh, on Twitter the DMs portion of it because they weren't fully encrypted. These messages going back and forth to the, you know, I, if I were sending you a DM through Twitter to your account, uh, it wasn't fully encrypted or um, I'm not sure the the specifics of it. But they now do full end-to-end encryption so nobody can see these messages or, you know, um, get them in transit or whatever. But the, the downside is Twitter wants you to pay for it. You have to be one of their verified, whatever it is, eight or ten dollars a month, you know, to get it, which I don't agree with. I think that with these services and the amount of advertising they do, I think end to end encryption for the end user should be just a standard. It should it should be part of the thing. So like if you're on Instagram using Messenger, you know, those those messages between you and whoever clients or whoever, those should be encrypted by default and not that's not always the case so that might be another area to just hey some people think that you know nobody can see these messages or no you know they're they're all private because it's it's just assumed don't ever think that don't ever assume that you know so um because that's not always the case hmm. yeah it's a scary thought oh well okay so my next question I'm going to I'm going to admit this is very much a chat GPT question because I didn't even know they were called this. So, I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the potential cybersecurity risks associated with Internet of Things devices and how can entrepreneurs mitigate those risks? Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um so do you know what an Internet of Things is? Uh no. <laughs> When somebody says like an IoT device, okay. I do not. Um, <laughs> I'm sure so, many I mean, other people don't. This is kind of one of those. I call it like a gray term or a fuzzy term because it's some you can use it for some things, and some people don't consider that an IoT device, and it's just it's just kind of a gray area. But essentially, it's like everything's now smart enabled. You see a lot of home devices, right? Like your smart homes, and your you know your you can have a smart fridge or a you know, even down to like a light bulb, be a smart light bulb that you can control with your phone or, or whatever. All these smaller devices are all internet enabled devices. And that's what they, I mean, they communicate through the internet to your, to your phone. Let's say if I had a smart home and I was getting close to my house, I can open this app and, you know, turn on those lights before I get home so that we can see it because it's after dark. Right. So all these devices have to go through the internet to get to your phone and and vice versa for you to communicate back to those things. So these are all IoT devices or Internet of Things. Um, but yeah, a lot of people will buy these devices, you know, like a little, you know, something that you can talk to in the room or your smart fridge, your GU smart fridge, or just um, all these little things, right? And so a lot of the times they'll just out of the box, they'll have 
kind of a default username or password on it. And a lot of people just kind of skip that. And so my advice for, for kind of protecting these things, I have two, two pieces that are, you know, free to use and uh, they're really good to use uh, to help against people trying to attack you or be malicious. But uh, the first one is change the default username and password. I mean, get it out of the box, read your instructions, or maybe they have some PDF online that you read, but um, be sure to change it because one thing that a malicious person can do is literally just, so let's say it was like a GE SmartFidge and the model was like a YBG112 or something. That person can just go to Google and just say, hey, what's the default username and password for that? And there's usually some site that shows literally known like username and passwords that will work against these refrigerators, you know? And so depending on how they're trying to attack you, that just gives them a little bit extra, you know, kind of a head start in trying to attack. So getting these little devices and changing them. The next thing is some devices, obviously a fridge is a bad example for this, but some devices you want to kind of lock away, especially if you're using them in a business setting. Like if you had a storefront, you want to kind of have a secured area. And this goes for, like all of your stuff, all your networking switches, all of your, you know, loose uh, tech devices like laptops and stuff. You want to kind of have them in a locked area, you know, away from people who that can just get instant access to it. And the, that'll help out tremendously as well. But I mean, off the top of my head, that's really for IoT devices. They're kind of little self-contained things and and doing that will help tremendously and, and making sure they're patched and all that stuff because, you know, GE might push out an, a software update that you might put off for months and it, it was an update that was a security update that blocked maybe that going back to that example, you know, a SQL injection thing, you know, just, and that, that's not always the case, but, you know, those are just things you can do to try to protect yourself. Hmm. All righty. Well, how can entrepreneurs assess the cybersecurity readiness of third-party vendors and service providers that they work with? Um, that's actually a really good question. Um, and this might be kind of outside of what I know, but um, I would say probably doing an assessment on their uh, security documentation, right? So as an entrepreneur, if you were gonna use something, um, some sort of service, in line with whatever product you're trying to give to your customers. So like a supply chain, um, you might want to ask them for like, a their security practices or if they've been certified in certain areas, because you can ask that of vendors just to see what their kind of security posture is. Um, and there's a technical term for it. I'm trying to remember. It could be, um, like vendor risk assessment. I think that's actually a thing where you can just, go through and, and identify, you know, we have three companies that provide the same service that we need and going through and just checking what they do. And so one thing, and again, this is something I wish I had, I, I don't have a computer in front of me right now to go look up, but there are certain things depending on what you're doing as your business, um, certain uh, acts and regulations that you have to abide by. And it really depends on what country you're in and, you know, essentially where you're located and what industry you're in. So like a lot of people um, will know of in the healthcare industry, there's HIPAA, right? You have to abide by HIPAA, the HIPAA Act, um, and to protect data of, you know, uh, people, customers, or I say customers, but they're going to be clients in the healthcare industry and I'm protecting their information, such as like social security numbers, addresses and all that stuff. And so, uh, as well as their medical records, right? And so there are other things like if you're trying to sell stuff online, um, I know that in the European Union, they do have a, uh, an act called the GDPR, I believe is the acronym, um, but it's essentially a, a data protection act that will they all have to abide by and companies within them as far as they, it kind of sets rules and regulations on how they have to manage and store their data and how they use uh, customers' data, which is really nice. It should be everywhere. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of that in America. I do know that in California, they do have similar type acts if you're you're uh, working out of there. Um, but these might be things you want to ask of that supply chain, right? That vendor, you might, hey, yeah, you noticed that, you know, 
you're located in, in the UK, you know, can you show me some certification, show me some regulations and you can even ask for reviews from other people who use their service. Right. And, and typically these companies, because they're wanting, they're kind of the middleman between you and your, your clients, right. They'll, they'll actually, they're used to this type of, you know, request. And so they, they might have security documentation just to kind of prove um, their, the kind of integrity of their security posture. Right. That wraps up my questions for you today. Uh, I know that we're going to have more tech talk conversations in the future, and I'm excited about them. That might surprise you to hear because I know that it's all above my head a bit, but I know that it's also all extremely beneficial and not really, I feel like it's not talked about a whole lot. You see so many, I don't know, social media accounts, coaches, small businesses geared towards like literally business coaching or just, you know, encouraging um, business owners um, focused on supporting small business. And I just, I really don't see much focus on the cybersecurity or the tech side of running a business. And so that's what I'm excited for, um, for the future conversations because it just, it needs to be talked about more. Yeah. You know, um, and it might be a, a couple things I, you know, one, it's kind of boring, right. <laughs> to talk about. So it's, it's not really appealing, especially when you're trying to start up. You do see a lot of those like, Hey, you know, try these X amount of things and you'll generate more, you know, customers and stuff. But on the flip side, it's like, all right, so we go from 10 customers to 200 customers. How are we storing the data? Are we following the rules? You know, they, so you're absolutely right. There's a lot more that, is done behind the scenes and not a lot of people are, are really talking about it or how to like effectively set something up to, to protect themselves as well as their customers. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. Well, if you'd like to allow listeners to connect with you, can you tell us where to find you? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I do have a blog, which I post to super infrequently. It's just zacksanford.com. And then I only use one social media, which is Twitter, and that's just at Zach Sanford, all lowercase, um, which I do post a lot on there. So, Cool. Well, we'll make sure to include the links in the show notes as well, so it's a quick way to find you as well. Um, well, thank you for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for spending some of your valuable time with me today. If you haven't already, I'd be so grateful if you'd take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you've shared this podcast with others that may find it helpful, that would also be incredibly appreciated. I'd really love to connect with you on social media. Shoot me a DM with any specific topics that you'd like to hear more about or any questions that you'd like me to ask fellow mompreneurs during guest interviews to come. You can find me on most platforms with the handle at MessyMompreneur. I'll share my contact info in the show notes as well. All right, friend, have a great week.